Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Sutton service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. We're starting a sermon series that will take us through to the start of September, looking at the Old Testament story of Esther. Uh, Esther, if you've never read it before, is a quite brilliant story. It has all the hallmarks of a Hollywood movie, uh, and I'm sure over the coming weeks we'll be looking at things like courage and faithfulness and trusting God in dark times and overcoming impossible challenges. And I don't want to steal the thunder of any of that. And so today I just want to basically set the scene and leave us with just one thing that I want to draw from the first couple of chapters of Esther. And what I want to draw out is not just because I think it's in the text, I think that's what uh, part of the story is all about, is actually something I want to encourage us to do over this summer season with a new academic year on the horizon. And that is, the big fat point I want to leave us with today is I want to encourage us to pay attention to God. I want to encourage us to pay attention to God. Or put differently, the question I, I want us to wrestle with, how on earth do we find God in the midst of a culture where God seems totally absent? Well, the answer is we pay attention to God. Uh, And the reason I say all of this, and if you've ever heard a sermon on the story of Esther before, you will know this. Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned. Not once. A story in the Bible, and God is not mentioned once. More than that, if God is there, and if God does have a master plan to renew and redeem all things, it doesn't look like it's working very well. You ever looked at the state of the world and wondered, God, where are you? Do you have a plan that's working? Like, how do you find God in the midst of all of that? Well, the answer is we need to pay attention, and that's what I want us to focus on. Let's start uh, by setting the scene and just getting a feel uh, for where the story of Esther is set. Uh, Esther um, comes towards the end of the Old Testament chronologically, and it's a a particularly low point for Israel. You can see it's not quite at the end, uh, but not far off. And uh, to kind of give you a kind of scene set... Uh, Little old Israel has been living with a promise from God that if Israel stays faithful to God, then through Israel one day the whole earth will be blessed. But Israel basically has not stayed faithful to God. Uh, Israel thought we want to enjoy all the other gods and what they offer as well. We think we want to do things in our own strength and we've kind of deserted God as a result. And a a bit like any product that if you disobey the maker's instructions, it's going to end up breaking. Israel has ended up breaking as a result. And it has been conquered by the Babylonians, who were the world's superpower at the time, and taken off into exile. And Israel is in exile for 70 long years. Well, during this period, in 539 BC, uh, to be precise, Babylon is conquered by Persia. Uh, Persia becomes uh, the new world superpower. And so Israel kind of gets morphed into Persian territory. Now, after 70 years of exile, a few of the Israelites begin returning to Israel. There's a few waves that go back. Uh, The first wave is led by a guy called Zerubbabel. Uh, You can read about him in Haggai and Zechariah in particular, one of my favorite Old Testament characters. Uh, The second wave is under the leadership of a guy called Ezra, and you can read about that in the story of Ezra. But a whole load of Israelites still remained scattered across the Persian Empire. And in reality, it was probably more comfortable to stay in cushy Persia than it was to go back to kind of broken and ruined Israel. And so the story of Esther focuses on some of the Jews who've remained in exile at the heart of the Persian Empire. And this is where we pick up Esther chapter 1 and verse 1. This is what it says. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes 
The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. So let's just pause for a moment. Persia, the writer tells us, dominates the world. In fact, there's a map coming up on the next slide which shows you just how vast the empire was. Massive, subsuming loads of modern-day countries. So Persia is huge, and Xerxes is the leader of Persia. Uh, I don't know whether any of you have ever watched the movie 300 with Gerard Butler playing the king of Sparta. Uh, next slide. There he is. Um, the Xerxes in that movie is the Xerxes in the story of Esther. And I don't know exactly how accurate it was, though I did a little bit of digging, and they did try to be as historically accurate as they could. Um, even if it's not precise, I think it helps us imagine just how vast and indulgent and hedonistic the empire was, and a leader who is basically drunk on wealth and power. And Esther uses a number of literary devices to try and paint a picture of just how indulgent and hedonistic the culture was. In fact, the word feasting is used 20 times in Esther and only 24 times in the rest of the whole of the Old Testament. Like the writer paints a picture that is basically one long party. And I won't read all the text of chapter one, but it's going to come up on the screen uh, in a moment. Uh, we're told that there's marble and silver and gold and mother of pearl. There's a huge banquet, the first of many banquets, and each guest is given a precious goblet different from the other one. Verse 8, people can drink with no restrictions whatsoever. I mean, it's just so indulgent, so hedonistic. And in the midst of all this indulgence, we're told in verses 9 to 12 that Xerxes summons his queen Vashti to parade her before his assembled guests. Now, having looked into this, I think it's likely he was asking her to parade naked. We don't know this for sure, but even if she wasn't, he was basically asking her to come so all his nobles and officials could lech and ogle over her. And Vashti, who's one of the only characters who emerges from this story with any kind of credit or dignity, she refuses, and Xerxes is absolutely furious. And so he gathers all of his officials and says, what on earth shall we do? And interestingly, verse 16 they decide that Vashti has not only done wrong against Xerxes, but she has done wrong against all the nobles and officials and all the peoples across the whole of the empire. And so a law is basically enacted, verses 20 to 21, that is read in each of the 127 provinces of Persia that basically controls and demeans and manipulates women. And that takes us to the end of chapter 1. And what we can easily miss between the end of chapter 1 and the start of chapter 2 is that four years go by and nothing happens. Four years of domination and control that say to people like Esther, you are nothing. You are powerless. You are nothing but an object to be desired. Your whole purpose in life is to gratify the desires of powerful men. And all this in a culture that is saturated and obsessed with self and power and greed. In other words, here's what the writer is doing. He does this very cleverly. He's painting a picture where basically he's showing a world where not only is God not mentioned. Like if God is at work, it doesn't look like he's doing a very good job. Like God seems absent, not just in word, but also in deed. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Freedom itself has been taken away. The rich and the powerful look like they are going to have the final word. And there's almost like a haughtiness and an arrogance and a smugness about the way Persia views God 
and his people. And this goes on for years. I mean, just to bring this up to the present day for a moment, have you ever looked at the state of the world and wondered, God, where are you? Maybe you've looked at your own circumstances and wondered, God, are you there? Have you ever prayed and wondered, God, are you even listening to me? Or maybe you look at the world and it seems like those who don't believe in God are doing way better than those who do believe in God. Or maybe some of us feel, metaphorically speaking, like Israel in this story, like we're in exile. Like there's this place we should be and we thought that place would be really good and we are not there right now. And getting to the place where we thought we should be seems utterly and totally impossible. Maybe you have promises or dreams that feel unfulfilled. I didn't think life would be like this. Why would God let that happen? Maybe in the busyness or ordinariness of life, it feels like no one is there and no one is listening. Or maybe you just feel worn down by a culture that says it is foolishness to believe in God. If you can relate to any of that, then the story of Esther is for you. And the question I want to pose is, how do you find God in the midst of all of that? If you're like, I really want to get hold of God, how do we find him? And I think the answer that Esther poses very simply is this, you just have to pay attention. God is there, but only for those who are looking for him. You see, the story of Esther is structured very carefully indeed. Next slide uh, is just a screenshot from the Bible Project. The Bible Project is just a a brilliant resource if you want to look uh, more deeply into the Bible. Uh, This is a 10-minute video that gives you an overview of the story of Esther. You might want to watch it as we go through these series over the next few weeks. Now, interestingly, there are mirrored stories at the beginning and end of the book. But what the Bible Project video doesn't show you is right in the middle, there is a pivot point here where the whole story changes. And the pivot point, the thing that changes everything in this story is a night when the king loses sleep. That's it. Got all this action, activity, threat and suspense and the thing that changes everything or the king loses a night's sleep. Why? Here's what one commentary says and this quote will come up on the screen so you can read along. By making the pivot point a seemingly insignificant event, Rather than a point of high dramatic tension, the author is taking the focus away from human action and reinforces the point that not even the most powerful person in the empire is in control of what's about to happen. An unseen power is controlling our destiny. And the book of Esther is just filled with these funny coincidences. These things that shouldn't really happen, that do end up happening. And we're meant to see God in the midst of it. You've got all this wealth and power. Where's God? Oh, he's there. He's just beneath the surface. And perhaps most interestingly of all, uh, and you can't see this in the English translation, uh, but if you Google this, there's loads on it. While God is not mentioned directly, he's mentioned indirectly. And this is very unusual for a Jewish author. Uh, Yahweh's name is not ever mentioned in the text, but at a number of points throughout the book of Esther, his name is spelt out through acrostics. Now, the Jews would never do this. Uh, Next slide shows you where some of them actually come up in the book. And the first is in Esther chapter 1 and verse 20, where the law is being read out. Ladies, you have no power at all. Like, God, what are you doing in the midst of it? For those who are reading in the original Hebrew, our God is there. In the most broken moments of our world, oh God, you're still at work. God is there for those who pay attention. 
Uh, if you know my preaching, you know I basically need an illustration about every two minutes to keep me interested. Uh, so here comes one. And uh, this is a, a short video clip, if you want to get the video clip ready, uh, that probably you've uh, seen before. And I'm going to make just a really obvious cheesy link from it. Uh, this is my favourite clip from the Queen's Jubilee back in June. Uh, and this was a story that had never been told before uh, from the Royal Protection Officer Richard Griffin. Uh, it happened in the Queen's 80s, uh, I believe. And uh, I just think this is a really fantastic story about what it says about the Queen more than anything else. It's two minutes long. Let's play the video clip now. Well, one of my favourite stories is when we were at Balmoral and the Queen used to go up there in May to Crigowan House and just stay there privately for a weekend. And she would go up at lunchtime for picnics and very often it would just be the police officer and Her Majesty. And one of the picnics I went out with her, we had a lovely picnic and a lovely chat and then we went for a little walk, just the two of us. And normally on these picnic sites you, you meet nobody but there was two hikers coming towards us and the Queen would always stop and say hello. And it was two Americans on a walking holiday. And it was clear from the moment that we first stopped they hadn't recognised the Queen, which is fine. And the American gentleman was telling the Queen where he came from, where they were going to next, and where they'd been to in Britain. And I could see it coming and sure enough, he said to Her Majesty, and where do you live? <laughs> and she said, well, I live in London, but I've got a holiday home just the other side of the hills. <laughs> And he said, well, how often have you been coming up here? Oh, she said, I've been coming up here ever since I was a little girl, so over 80 years. And he could see the clogs thinking. He said, well, if you've been coming up here for 80 years, you must have met the Queen. I and as quick as a flash, says, well, I haven't, but Dick here meets her regularly. <laughs> so the guy said to me, well, you've met the Queen, what's she like? And because I was with her a long time and I knew I could pull a leg, I said, oh, she can be very cantankerous at times, <laughs> but she's got a lovely sense of humour. Anyway, the next thing I knew, this guy comes around, puts his arm around my shoulder, and before I could see what was happening, he gets his camera, gives it to the Queen, and says, can you take a picture of the two of us? <laughs> anyway, we swapped places, and I took a picture of them with the Queen, and we never let on, and we waved goodbye. And then Her Majesty said to me, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows us photographs to the friends in America and hopefully someone tells him who I am. Oh, that's brilliant. I love that story. And I just find it remarkable that for those two American tourists, the Queen is there and they miss her. They got a photo and they miss her. And, and the cheesy link is this, like how often do we do this with God? Like, could it be that God, just imagine right now, like God is here right now, guys. He is here. Imagine he's right in front of you trying to get your attention. Could it be that we're missing him? Like, if we can do that with the queen, how often can we do this with God? And, and just to be clear, like this is not just so we have a nice, deeper spiritual life and know him better. Like Our very lives depend on this. Uh, we have the church retreat coming up at the end of this month. And on one of the mornings, I'm going to be doing a, a devotional. Here's one of the things I'm going to share in that devotional. Uh, I find it really amusing that the animal that we are likened to most in the scriptures is a sheep. That is not a good animal to be likened to. Like, I'm a football fan, I'm a fan of wolves. Rawr, come on, that's a good animal to be likened to, yeah? Sheep, not so much. You know, you have sheep, uh, you have dog trainers, lion trainers, horse trainers. There's never been a sheep trainer. Sheep are defenseless against enemies, they have no sharp teeth, they have no claws. They don't run very quick. They're very easily spooked. I did some research on this. I found it remarkable. Sheep cannot even find water without being led there. 
Sheep cannot find new pasture without being led there. Guys, this is us. Like we are sheep. Like we're utterly dependent on the voice of the shepherd. What if God is trying to get our attention and we're missing him? The book of Esther paints a picture where it feels like it's really hard to see God. And the writer says, no, he's there if you look deeply. Uh, A few years ago, uh, I was blessed by the church with a sabbatical. Uh, I'd been on staff about 12 years or so, and I had nine glorious weeks off over the summer, and it was wonderful. And I wanted to be really responsible with the time, and so I mapped out every single day for nine weeks of what I was going to do. Read, write, study, travel, explore. I just wanted to be responsible and make the most of it. And about a week before my sabbatical, I felt God speak to me in a very vivid, very unexpected way. And I felt God say this, Andy, if you really want to meet me, like if you really want to find me on your sabbatical, you will find me in the ordinary in the everyday. You will find me when you're stuck in traffic. And when you're walking down supermarket aisles. And when you're playing with the kids. And so if you really want to find me, put away all your plans and find me there. And you know what? I really did. And I would say it's one of the most transformative moments in my whole walk with Jesus. I did do some reading during that time, and the takeaway quote that I remind myself of regularly was from a Victorian poet called Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who says this, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every bush aflame with God, but only those who see take off their shoes. Like, God is everywhere. And he's crammed into everything. But only those who go looking for him realise, oh, this moment right here is holy ground. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, he once preached an entire sermon on the spiritually transcendent activity of changing dirty nappies. Whole sermon on that. Like, you can have your hands in poo and you can find God. How? Like, you're changing a nappy and you start to think, hang on, Jesus did this. Jesus was a baby. Jesus pooed. What does that say about his weakness and his vulnerability? How does that speak to my vulnerability? And Oh, suddenly he's there. Earth is crammed with heaven. Uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who I love, I felt every word he ever wrote or spoke was dripping with wisdom. He said this, miracles do not induce faith. Within just three days of the Red Sea parting, people are grumbling about not having water. Faith is seeing the miraculous in the everyday, not waiting every day for the miraculous. You know, I meet so many people who feel like, if I had a lightning bolt moment from God, then I'd believe. Then I'd trust. Then my faith would come alive. Guys, the Bible tells us that's not true. Like, a Red Sea parts. Like, wow. Three days later, they're like, where's God? Like, miracles don't induce faith. Faith is realizing, oh no, he's here. To realize God's here, earth is crammed with heaven. But only those who see take off their shoes. But there's a little bit more to it than that. I don't want to leave us there because I think the danger is it can leave us with a very individualistic perspective with regards to finding God. You see, the story of Esther tells us that we go seeking after God, not just so we find him for ourselves, but for the sake of the world. In other words, we become the way through which the world finds God. And this takes us into Esther chapter 2. So four years go by. 
four years that say to people like Esther who are about to meet, you have no power, you can't do anything. And then we're introduced to two of the key characters in the story, Mordecai and Esther. And guys, these, these two characters are utterly helpless. Like, they got nothing. Uh, Mordecai, we're told, uh, was one of the people who was carried into exile by the Babylonians. So he's probably quite old, and he suffered the indignity of having his home nation destroyed and carried off into captivity, probably in chains. Esther, also called Hadassah, we're called, more on that in a moment, we're told he's an orphan. Her mum and dad have died, and so she's taken in by Mordecai. Like, these characters have nothing. How can they make a difference? But then we're told in chapter 2 that the nobles and officials come to Xerxes and say, hey, I think you need a new queen. We've got an idea. Let's have a big beauty context. And so a woman is chosen from each of the 127 provinces. And out of these 127 provinces, out of these 127 women, I should say, one will be chosen, the one who pleases Xerxes the most, and she will become queen. Esther is the person that is chosen. After a day of beauty treatments, she is the one that becomes queen. And here's one of these moments where we have to pay attention. Because Esther is the only character in the whole of the story that's given two names. She's called Esther, but she's also called Hadassah. Why is she also called Hadassah? Well, Hadassah is a Hebrew word that means myrtle. And the myrtle was a beautiful flower. In fact, there's a picture of it coming up uh, on the screen that's very significant in the prophetic literature in the Old Testament. It comes up in places like Isaiah chapter 41, uh, Isaiah chapter 55. The myrtle was the flower that God would plant in the desert to replace the thorn bush and the briar. You've got this kind of wilderness experience. Like, where's God? What's God doing? Uh, the myrtle's going to come. And the myrtle is Esther, and the myrtle is you and I. Esther, Mordecai, you and I, we become the way through which the world finds God. That's the heart of the story of Esther. And it's actually bigger and broader than that. Rather than getting into the rest of the story of Esther, we'll do that in the coming weeks. But this ripples beyond the borders of Esther. Uh, The next book chronologically in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is the book Nehemiah. Nehemiah tells us the story of the third and final wave of Israelites that return to Israel, return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city through which somehow one day the world is going to get changed. Why? Because someone's going to come who changes everything. And we're told that in the book of Nehemiah, the ruler of Persia is a guy called Artaxerxes. He's Xerxes' son, and he's based in the citadel of Susa, same place we read about Mordecai. And in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 8, there's this hugely climactic moment where Nehemiah comes to the king, Artaxerxes, saying, can I have your favor? And can I have some resources to go back and rebuild Jerusalem? And we're told in Nehemiah 2 verse 8 that the queen is sitting next to him. I read a really interesting article in the Huffington Post. This was from a rabbi who says the queen in Nehemiah chapter 2 is Esther. And even if it's not... Because a lot of the commentaries, they're not sure. We don't know. She's not named. Even if it's not, because of the time and geographical proximity, Artaxerxes would have certainly known Esther and Mordecai. And scholars believe it's because of them that Nehemiah is given favor through which to return to Jerusalem, rebuild the city, through which one day Jesus will come and the world will get blessed. Like Esther's call goes way beyond her own life. The myrtle's going to come. 
The desert's going to be turned into the most beautiful place. Everything's going to get changed. And it goes even broader than that. Because at the end of Esther chapter 2, which is going to do chapters 1 and 2 today, there's another subplot. Mordecai just happens to overhear a plot against King Xerxes. It's one of those little coincidences that shouldn't happen, but actually does happen. He reports the plot, Xerxes is spared, the plotters are exposed, and they are killed. And they're killed by being impaled on poles. That becomes significant later on in the story. But we're told in the Hebrew, impaled on a pole literally means they are hung on a tree. They are hung on a tree, so Xerxes is spared, so Israel is saved, so the world gets redeemed. It is a little hint. It is a little taste. It's a little foreshadowing of the person of Jesus who's going to be another king that comes in an altogether different mould to Xerxes. Rather than coming to indulge himself, he's going to come and lay his life down. He's going to hang on a tree. And through Jesus hanging on a tree, you and I are saved. History will be changed and the world will be redeemed. The story of Esther is a little taster of the victory of Jesus, of the story of our scriptures and the destiny of our world. Yes, our world looks broken and hopeless and dark. I mean, especially right now. You watched the news this week and thought, God, where are you? Well, the story of Esther tells us, oh, no, no, God's there. Earth is crammed with heaven. But only for those who are looking for him and for those who find him, we become the way through which the world sees God. Let me give you one other illustration on this to help us see this or feel this in a different way. Uh, This is a story that happened to me uh, a few years ago now. And it actually happened around about this time of year. Uh, I was about to go on holiday and I was uh, writing a talk for the church retreat. And this was a talk actually about paying attention to God, uh, ironically. And I'm in my room at home. I'm at my desk. I'm writing this talk and I'm on a deadline. I want to get this done before I go on holiday. And while I'm writing this talk, randomly a picture comes into my head of a girl that I have met once in my life around about four or five years previously. Uh, I thought that's really random, kind of shrugged it off. Um, And just to give you a bit of background, this girl uh, came once to Christchurch. A person in Christchurch had invited her along to church. Uh, She wasn't a Christian. Uh, I was preaching that Sunday, and she had some big, big questions about faith. So she came up to me at the end of the sermon. She asked some of those questions. We exchanged numbers in case she had any more questions, had a quick coffee, And that was the extent of our interaction. And now, four or five years later, she's popping into my head. I'm like, weird, I've got a talk to write, carry on writing it. Picture of her just comes back into my head. I'm like, no, this is weird, no, just get on, I've got to finish the talk. Picture of her comes back into my head, I'm like, I just put my pen down, I'm like, why am I thinking of this girl? And then I began to think, I'm writing a talk on paying attention to God. It's like, God, is this you? I'm like, God, if this is you, what do I do right now? And I was like, oh, no, I don't want to have to contact her. Like, that makes me sound super creepy. Like, hi, I met you four years ago, thinking about you. There's no way you can send that text in a good way. You just can't do that. But, like, I couldn't get this girl out of my head. I'm like, what do I do? So I thought, oh, you know what, I'll try it. So I just sent um, a text saying, hi, her name. Uh, This is a bit random, but you popped into my head. Uh, hope you're doing really well, catch you soon, Andy, send. I could feel myself blushing as I kind of carried on writing the talk 
And about a minute later, my phone goes, ding, ding. There's a message on my phone saying, Andy, I can't believe you sent that right then. It makes me think God might be real. Can we meet? Uh, Not a message I've ever had from any of you, I hasten to add. Okay, just to say, wow, Andy's text, God must be real. No, I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting. So we arranged to meet in Pret-a-Manger in Victoria. And she told me the story of how we came to be there. Uh, She said, "Um, Andy, um, my parents were abroad. And it's summer and all my friends are away. And I had to go for a medical appointment uh, in a central London hospital. And the medical appointment did not go well. And I came out of that hospital feeling totally overwhelmed. uh, Totally just like full of emotion. Didn't know who to talk to. And I hailed a taxi to get home. Got in the back of the taxi and the emotion just caught up with me and I just burst into tears. And the taxi driver turned to me and said, oh, I'm really sorry to see you crying, madam. Is everything okay? And she said, oh, Ali, I'm really sorry. It's just been a difficult morning. Could you take me here? And the taxi driver stopped and said, well, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I'm a follower of Jesus. Could I pray for you right now? And this girl said, okay. So this taxi driver then prays these words, Father God, I don't know what's going on in this lady's life, but you know. I thank you that you love her and that you are for her. And I want to pray that you would both fill her with your Holy Spirit and help her to experience his comfort and his peace. But I also pray that this lady wouldn't just experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. I want to pray that you would bring someone into her life that can point her to Jesus. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ding, 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 ding. My text message arrives. The text message of God. (laughs) And so we arrange to meet. And as she tells me this story, it's almost like I've got an audible voice in my head. It's hard to describe any other way. Just ask her if she wants to follow Jesus. Ask her if she wants to follow Jesus. Ask her if she wants to follow Jesus. And so once she shared, I said, look, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but would you like to know Jesus personally? Would you like to follow him? Would you like to give your life to him? And she said, I'd love to. I just don't know how. And I said, well, how about we pray? She said, I don't know what to say. So I said, well, I'll pray and you can repeat after me. And so I just led her through the most simple prayer. Sorry, thank you, please. Father, sorry, I've missed you. You've been there and I didn't realise it. Sorry that I've spent my life indulging myself in other things rather than searching for you. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you are there. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that I can know you. Now please come into my life. Help me to know you. Help me to discern you are there. And so I prayed this. Sorry, thank you, please pray. She repeated it as the tears rolled down her face. And it's difficult to put into words other than to say the presence of God in that moment was quite extraordinary. In Pret-a-Manger in Victoria of all places. Earth is crammed with heaven and every bush aflame with God, but only those who see take off their shoes. A couple of reflections on that story. Firstly, how easily I could have missed it because I was writing a Christian talk. Is God trying to speak to you right now? What might he want to say? And secondly, that moment didn't just change her life, it changed my life. I began to realise, hang on, I'm made for more than just myself. 
Like when you get to experience stories like that, doesn't it make your faith come alive in new ways? Don't you want more of that? You know, the reason I want to encourage you this summer to pay attention to God is not just for your own sake. It's because our world needs Jesus. Guys, you're called to be the myrtle. And in the brokenness and pain of our world, we become the way through which the world sees God. Can I ask the band to come up and can I ask us all to stand for a moment? And before we sing a closing song, I just want to lead us in a short moment of what the Bible calls waiting on the Lord. Which basically is this, a moment of quiet and stillness for you to maybe tune in to what God might be saying to you. Some of you in this moment will hear God. Some of you won't. There's mystery, it's just the way he works. But if you don't, just say, God, I want to hear you. I want to listen. I want this week for every bush to be aflame with God. So let's just welcome the presence of Jesus right now. Come Holy Spirit. We wait on you. Father, I want to ask that we would be a people who pay attention. That even in the most painful of circumstances, we see the finger of God at work. And I want to ask that this summer would be a season where we seek you and where we find you. And that we get to the start of a new academic year, a called people. That every single one of us would get to September knowing I've heard the voice of God. And that we know your voice, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of our world. Even if we're like Esther and Mordecai, who had nothing. Speak to us. Help us to find you, both for our own sake and for those around us. And I ask now in this moment, intensify your presence amongst us, I pray. May the gentleness of Jesus draw close. Remind us of old promises. Speak to us about new ones. And may this be a moment of profound engagement with the divine. Come by your presence now and fill this room with such intensity that it fuels us to seek you throughout this week. We love you and honour you, our Lord Jesus. Meet us now, I pray in your name. Let's worship God together.